That music means your next hour is going to be about connection. Welcome to This Show Is All About You, a show dedicated to discussing and experiencing the things we all have in common. When you and me become we and explore what it means for all of us. Here's your host, historian, writer, social commentator, and a whole lot of other things, J.D.K. Winnekin. Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of This Show is All About You, where over the next hour, we'll talk about things that uh, certainly on some level we all have in common. Some of them may be obvious, some of them not so obvious. Uh, Whatever the case, I really appreciate you coming along for today's ride, and I'm very excited to be back after uh, a week away and uh, ready to jump right into it. So First of all, if you would like to learn more about me, please check out my website, wordsbyjdk.com, and you'll find a lot of material there, past episodes of this show, uh, previous podcasts that I have done, as well as original writings, update on my uh, book project, and more. You can also find me on uh, social media at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just look up my last name, W-Y-N-E-K-E-N. You'll find me rather easily. would love to hear from you and connect with you. Let's chat about whatever comes up. Right from the very beginning, I want to make sure I thank this show's generous sponsor, Airway Science for Kids, uh, which is a nonprofit based down in the Portland, Oregon area that provides life and career pathway opportunities for underserved youth through the exploration of aerospace careers. And they do it in a very comprehensive and holistic way that not only is about careers, but also about personal empowerment for these kids and better connecting them with themselves with their families and their communities. If you'd like to know more about the amazing work that Airway Science for Kids does, please check out their website at airsci.org, A-I-R-S-C-I dot org. Well, uh, really there is only one subject I think that I could talk about today uh, on this podcast. And of course, it's a topic that I literally mention every week on this show as a matter of course and a a situation that has just uh, reached its one-year anniversary. And of course, that is talking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So in a truncated start, there's only one piece in today's news recap. Uh, What in the world is going on? Let's just jump right into it, folks. The Russians have no line of sight here. But they have eyes in the sky. We've just been told to duck down here now and take cover at the wall. The troops have heard something, possibly a Russian drone. The front line is about 500 metres away. They say Russian troops are trying to advance, but they're holding them back. That last quote from that BBC correspondent could effectively sum up the entire past year of what's been happening in Ukraine, at least on that sense. The Russians are trying to advance and Ukraine is preventing them from doing that. Uh, It's a very simplistic way of talking about what has become the largest war in Europe since World War II uh, and is rapidly becoming the largest war anywhere since World War II. But it certainly is looking back on a year of attrition, what has become a war of attrition, not just on the ground uh, between Russia and Ukraine, but political attrition and economic attrition as more and more time goes by, more and more countries in the world are getting set up on either side of this conflict. 
And it's becoming more of a question now of who can outlast the other. And the reason I'm going to focus on this today is mainly because I think it needs that amount of time. And there's an opportunity for us to reflect on what's happening, get a better sense of what's happening, and hopefully have a better sense of how we can respond wherever we happen to be, whoever we happen to be in the days and months ahead. Because sadly, uh, short of a major change in the regime in Moscow, this war looks like it's going to be going on for quite some time. Let me just give you a sense of some numbers, even though numbers can get overwhelming and all of that. Nevertheless, they matter. One year in, as of last Friday, the 24th, uh, here are some statistics. Estimates are, when you pull them all together, is about 100,000 Ukrainian soldiers have been killed or wounded in the last year. Double that for the Russians. So that's 200,000 casualties on their side. And that, by casualties, I mean killed, wounded, and missing. To give some perspective on that for listeners here in the United States, the total number of casualties that America suffered in the Vietnam War was just under 60,000. And that was over a war that lasted multiple years. So this is carnage on a very, very large scale. And when you consider that the fighting is happening mainly in the eastern 20% of what is occupied Ukrainian territory, uh, that is a concentrated area. And so the amount of people killed in that area uh, is very pronounced. That's where a lot of this is happening. And, of course, the refugee problem, which we'll talk about here in just a minute, uh, also you know, mitigates things even further couple other numbers. Upwards of half of Russia's available tanks and other armored vehicles have been destroyed, at least by general estimates, by people who know this stuff. Their ammunition shortages are very real. Uh, as I mentioned, 20% of the country is occupied by Russian troops. There are currently about 350,000 largely untrained and untested Russian soldiers that have been made available, a result of uh, Putin's so-called partial mobilization uh, late in, in 2022. But a number of them are already being killed and thrown into the breach uh, along the various lines in eastern Ukraine. And that supply will only last so long before likely another call-up will be needed. And who knows how that will go over. Roughly $2 trillion in American, in American dollars has been sent to Ukraine by the United States and by other countries around the world to help fight against the Russians, which is a massive amount of money and will probably need to continue. There are also 8.5 million refugees uh, outside of Ukraine's borders, uh, which is the largest uh, migration of people, forced migration of people fleeing a country since the end of the Second World War. At the end of the Second World War, roughly 15 to 20 million Eastern Europeans were on the move fleeing the Russians as they advanced westward. Uh, in this case, it's not quite as many, but when you consider this is almost half that number, at least on the low end within a year, uh, and that, that roughly one out of every three Ukrainians have been displaced from their homes, 14 million, that means out of those 14 million, eight have left the country, and there's no real sense of when they will be able to return safely. More broadly speaking than that, uh, NATO in the past year has been uh, strengthened and more unified, brought together by this experience. Uh, you might remember Finland and Sweden have expedited their uh, entry into NATO. And as the Finnish uh, prime minister recently said, uh, the one line they know that Russia will not cross is the NATO line. And Finland shares an 835-mile border with Russia leading up into the Arctic Ocean. 
And so NATO expansion, which was one of the very things that Putin wanted to avoid or said he was fighting in Ukraine to prevent, has actually happened. Uh, and it's one of the many areas where Putin has miscalculated over this past year. However, there are other states that are still at risk. Recently, Moldova uh, has entered the news uh, as a place where Russia might be trying to foment a coup against the elected government there to put pro-Russian segments, roughly half the population, into a position of power and invite Russian troops in. Moldova is on the southwestern flank of Ukraine and is accessible from the Black Sea, uh, where Russia's uh, navy is operating. And so that becomes a possible place of expansion of the war, as do the Baltic states uh, up along the Baltic Sea that were once part of the Soviet Union. In addition to all of that, Europe is facing a new reality. If you were to rewind about a little over a year ago, uh, European nations and economies and politicians are talking about very different things and expressing very different beliefs a year later about what their priorities are than a year ago. And so all of this doesn't even mention at all. These are just numbers. None of this mentions the day in, day out human cost of what this war has produced. And sadly, oftentimes when we take these big picture looks at what's happening in the world or even in history, the everyday stories of people can get lost. And what that can end up doing is remove us not just from the pain and the, the fear and the horror of war, which on some level it's understandable we want to avoid that. But what it also can do is disconnect us from the common shared humanity that we have with those people that are suffering in this. And certainly, first and foremost, I'm talking about the Ukrainian people, but also there are many Russians who are suffering because of this. Let's remember that these 350,000 forced conscripts that are at the front, the majority of them do not want to be there and increasing numbers of them are seem to be deserting or trying to flee. And many Russians, as you might remember, fled the country rather than be drafted a few months ago. And so there is a lot of pain and fear to go around in all of this. And what it forces us, I think, to confront, and I'm speaking for me, but I also think I'm maybe speaking more broadly to a certain degree. What it does for me is it puts me in a position where I have to decide to what degree uh, can I connect with all of this? To what degree does this get so overwhelming that the desire to simply shut it out of my mind, to shut it off, uh, to not pay attention, when does that enter in? And when is that okay to do uh, for our own you know, sense of, of mental health, emotional health? And where do we engage and how do we do that? And that answer is probably going to be a little bit different for everybody. One of the things that I've talked about on this show before and I talk about on my other uh, podcast breaking up with RBS is that the taking in of information uh, just for the sake of hopefully feeling better the more we get doesn't really work. And considering how much information I give to you about this every week, maybe that sounds kind of funny coming from me, but I do actually filter the amount of information I take in every day um, on the war in Ukraine and, and a lot, on a lot of other things, mainly because it can become overwhelming. It can overwhelm the nervous system and we can end up having emotional responses in all these other areas of our life that are not productive. Uh, one need not care about what's happening in Ukraine um, to, um, to suffer through that, certainly. But it does not mean 
that the price of paying attention and caring about what happens in Ukraine should be our own mental and emotional health. That said, I, as a historian and somebody who feels the, uh, feels the importance of understanding what is happening in the world at large, I uh, think this does matter because it does affect us. Certainly not to the same degree uh, immediately that Ukrainians themselves are facing or people who live in, in the border areas are facing. But nevertheless, the ripples are out there. The economic effects are hitting home uh, in a number of different places in this country as well as around the world. Certainly people in, uh, in Africa and uh, South Asia who rely on a lot of crops that come from Ukraine are suffering as well. Uh, European economies are suffering through inflation and energy crunches just in a similar way that's happening in the United States. And with all of these things, when there's upheaval uh, socially, politically, economically, uh, un- unexpected things can happen and long-standing tensions can rise up to the surface. And that's why the actions of people like Putin can be so dangerous and I would suggest why they must be challenged when and where they can. So today, what I want to take a look at is a way to hopefully give all of you a sense of maybe a better way to digest some of this in the spirit of not flooding you with information, (laughs) but not stepping away from the issue entirely. Uh, I would like to tell you three stories today, Um, and they're stories about individual places. Chances are these are locations that you have not heard of before. Uh, Some of you might. But most, most Americans will have not. And in each one, I think we can see some of the things that I'm talking about as well as connections to the real human cost and the human promise of uh, what is happening in this part of the world and what it says about where we are going collectively. So that's really where we're going to go today as a way of looking back on this past year in Ukraine. And it is a sad story indeed. There does not seem to be an end in sight to this war. What I will say is history is replete with example after example, particularly when it comes to wars and, and uh, geostrategic things. Uh, history is full of surprises in which what many people expect does not happen and what many people do not expect to happen does happen. So that means Rather than prognostications, it's important to take a look at what can be done now and what are the most important things to do in the near term. And really, in the end, trust that those steps can lead to a better long term. And so let's package it all together. When I come back from this first break, we'll jump right into these three stories. And it's three locations that I'm looking forward to telling you about. So come on back on This Show is All About Julia Cannell, Executive Director of Airway Science for Kids. We sponsor this show is all about you because it exemplifies our core values, connectivity, communication, emotional intelligence, positivity, respect, and the power of possibility. Help us introduce historically excluded youth to all of these through the wonder and promise of aviation and aerospace careers. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace to all. Visit airsci.org to learn more and to contribute your talents. 
Don't ask me to talk. Don't Ask Me to Talk is a program about sharing something good. Hosted by me, Stacey Heller, with my co-host and my mom's favorite, Eric Ryder, Don't Ask Me to Talk echoes what we're talking about when we aren't being so serious. We'll highlight what's good to watch, read, see, listen to, and more with a reoccurring spot with Vance Dingfelder of Dingfelder's Delicatessen called What Are We Eating? Tune in Thursdays from 3 to 4 on AM 880 KIXI. Welcome back to This Show Is All About You. We are looking back on one year of the war between Russia and Ukraine after Russia's invasion in February of 2022. Before the break, I gave you a lot of different numbers. And in this segment, I'd like to tell you three stories, stories about three places, all of them close to, I guess what you could call maybe if not the conflict zone, um, essentially the border between a physical border, as well as the political, economic and emotional border between what is happening between Ukraine and Russia and what is happening in Europe and elsewhere. And hopefully what we see out of all this is the commonality that we have across borders as people. And perhaps that can give us a sense of where we can each be and go going forward. So three places. The first I would like to tell you about is a place called Valima, and it is in Finland. And it is, Valima is about midway between the Finnish capital of Helsinki and Russia's so-called second city, St. Petersburg, right there at the edge of the Baltic. And uh, Finland, as I mentioned in the show opening, shares a very long border with Russia, 835 miles. And they also have a history of, shall we say, unease between themselves and Russia. They were once part of the old imperial Russian empire uh, several hundred years ago. They were independent in the 20th century and even fought a, a, a one-year-long war uh, in 1940, uh, between each other, which ended essentially in a stalemate. And then, of course, over the course of the Cold War, Finland was literally <laughs> on the front line between the free uh, democracies of Western Europe and the totalitarianism of the Soviet Union. So since the fall of communism, Finland has had a similarly uneasy relationship with Russia that has gone in ebbs and flows but what is significant about Valima, which is about 25 miles up, uh, up the um, inland from the Baltic Sea, is that it is the number one border stop, the largest border stop and border crossing between Finland and Russia. And it has been since it was created in 1958. So as a, as a lot of these border stops have, there's, there's a big area for trucks and cars to park while customs inspections do their thing. There's also a whole series of stores and shops on either side of the border where people who are waiting can stop in, buy things, you know, duty free, move them across the borders, you name it. And so because of that, even though the village of Alima is, is actually quite small, only a couple thousand people, when the border was fully active, particularly in the years leading up to 2022, it was rather a bustling little section of activity in the midst of these gentle rolling fields and uh, river estuaries and lakes that uh, make up the majority of Finland. There's over 100,000 lakes in Finland and they're spread out all over the place. It's actually quite idyllic. And you can see for long distances uh, between Finland and Russia in this part of their border. Now, 
Since the war began, however, increasingly Valima has become a ghost town. Back in September of 2022, Finland finally shut the border for good. This was on the heels of Putin's announcements of the partial mobilization, as he called it, which led, of course, to a massive exodus or attempted exodus by many Russian young men trying to flee the draft and get out of the country. Finland allowed that to happen for a while and then eventually, just for the sake of their own survival and not flooding their own country, began to reduce the amount and effectively then cut off Russian access into Finland from there. And by cutting that off of Ali Ma, it uh, cut it off effectively everywhere else. And so if you imagine in the middle of this 250-mile stretch between Helsinki on one end and St. Petersburg on the other, you have just out in the middle of this idyllic countryside as clear of a divide practically between Russia and all of it stands for and what it, what it pushes and what it envisions and what the European side of things envisions. It may not be like a Berlin Wall was during the Cold War, but it is no less real a divide. And so if you live on the Finnish side of the border, you can look into Russia every day, which, while they speak different languages, have different governmental systems, and have different histories, they simply are perhaps even further apart now than they ever have been. And that is, in a lot of ways, a perfect microcosm of what we can say about the rest of Europe uh, in this situation. That Europe itself has been forced over the last year to reevaluate on every level its relationship with Russia. Depending on the country we're talking about in the, among the 27 of the European Union, they may have drawn a few different lessons here and then, made, here and there made some different decisions. But more or less, the idea has died in the last year that Russia can be an effective integrated partner into the larger democratic and capitalist system that EU countries represent and that other countries like the United States also represent. That dream has been given up and the result has been an increasingly move, increasingly significant move away from things like Russian energy, which has been one of the biggest sticking points in Europe, putting up a united front against Putin, uh, but also politically a giving up on the idea that in the aftermath of World War II and the Cold War, that there can be a long-lasting, integrated, larger peace, cold or hot, between Russia and Europe. On one hand, that might just be the reality. On the other hand, it's a very, very sad statement because what it does do is that it puts to the test that post-war order that has existed since the end of the Second World War and particularly since the end of the Cold War, which is now a generation in the past, which means there are a lot of people alive who do not remember that the establishment of the, that old order, who do not remember the hope that flooded across Europe and Russia and, and the former Soviet republics after the fall of communism, that perhaps we were moving to a post-conflict age. Sadly, Vladimir Putin has made that impossible. And while you certainly do not hear any of the sounds of war at Valima, uh, the effects of it are very clear. The, sh the shops are all shut down. The, uh, the, all the parking spaces for the trucks and the cars are empty, and there are only a few border agents present 
at the crossing. Instead, what you find more than anything else are Finnish military who are making sure their presence is seen at the border. So that's just one city. Let's rotate south for a while uh, to the country that I mentioned before. Let's go to uh, Chisinau in Moldova. Chisinau is the capital city of Moldova, which was a former Soviet uh, republic as well as, as just like Ukraine was during the Cold War and earlier, but after the fall of communism became an independent country. And ever since, it has been one of the poorest countries in all of Europe. It is sandwiched between the southwestern portion of Ukraine. I think I might have said southeastern earlier. Southwestern portion of Ukraine and Romania. The majority of its citizens speak Romanian, but both socially and politically, the country is divided right down the middle between those who really want to see Moldova gravitate towards the European Union and, and NATO and the other side that wants to see closer ties established with Russia. And as you can imagine in Moldova, the fear has been since the war started that among both sides, that their side is going to lose. So it has increased tensions between these pro-Russian and pro-Western, for lack of a better term, segments in society. And of course, those of Russian descent, whether, no matter whether they support Russia's actions or, or do not, have been targeted for harassment and violence by non-Russians. And as you would expect, there are a lot of Ukrainians living in Moldova, and so violence has increased inside the country between Ukrainians and Russians as well, and that's producing political issues. Now, the other thing, though, about Chisinau is that it's one of the major uh, first refugee spots where people fleeing Ukraine have gone. There are several places. I'm going to mention a couple later. But for anyone in southern Ukraine, particularly Odessa, Kherson, all these places that have been in the news, Chisinau is not very far away. In fact, it's not even 120 miles away from Odessa. And so Chisinau, a city of two million, swelled very quickly in the first days of the war, trying to absorb hundreds of thousands of refugees, many of them women and children, fleeing what appeared to be, at least in the early stages, as a rapid Russian advance. And what that has done is it has added even more uh, political and social tension to Moldova. And at this point, uh, there are real fears that Russia is going to foment a coup inside Moldova and bring it into the Russian orbit. And therefore, then Russia might try to put troops there, which would effectively put them on either side of Ukraine. So that's something that nobody really wants to see in the Western world. But Chisinau is also the location where you can see a lot of the human suffering of what has been happening. Uh, in this war. Just to give you an idea, births in Ukraine of, of new babies dropped 25% last year, in large part because many women who were pregnant or of childbearing age fled the country. At the same time, miscarriages, and this is United Nations state, uh, stats, by the way, uh, miscarriages have increased by over 30% for people inside the country. And this is a major problem in part because 1,000 an estimated 1,000 healthcare facilities have been attacked or destroyed by the Russians during the war. So really for women who are pregnant, uh, getting neonatal care is very, very difficult. And so right now there are roughly around 40 neonatal, uh, mobile neonatal units working throughout Ukraine trying to help Ukrainian women who are pregnant or who are about to give birth. A number of them are under fire uh, so in the eastern section of the country and find it very difficult to keep up their supplies 
And certainly they suffer casualties as well. And replacing nurses and doctors uh, can be a very difficult thing. So Chisinau has become a place where the United Nations and other relief organizations have been also trying to set up neonatal care units wherever they can within the city uh, and are finding it uh, a challenge in some ways. There are other issues that people in, in, in that Chisinau sees from Ukrainians. Women and children fleeing the country, uh, fleeing Ukraine, I should say, can often fall prey to people on the outside, people whose language they do not speak, people who are out to victimize them. In addition, there are a number of women and children from Ukraine fleeing into neighboring countries, escaping domestic violence inside their own country. While the war has certainly split apart Ukrainian families as men go off to fight and women and children either stay where they are or flee for safety, the war has also thrown back together families that have been divided by domestic violence, bringing violent exes back into the household, and then from that, causing violence and causing women and children to flee. This, this absolutely blew me away. Inside Ukraine, the United Nations in the past year has built 50 centers for survivors of domestic violence just in Ukraine. And there are more being built in neighboring countries like Moldova and Poland and elsewhere. So 50 inside the country, even more on the outside. It shows you to what degree domestic violence has been increased within Ukraine by what the Russians have done. There are also 100 UN-supported mobile uh, support teams to be moving from location to location. Not only do these mobile support teams go to domestic violence shelters, but they also go to youth centers that have been established in Western Ukraine, as well as in countries bordering Ukraine, to work with teenagers. Because most believe that the most vulnerable people, besides little children who are vulnerable and need 100% protection 100% of the time, the most vulnerable people in this refugee situation are teenagers. The number of teenagers that are suffering from depression and alienation, either in the country of their birth, but they're living in a new part of the country, or in a brand new country, is pronounced. So much so that the United Nations, as well as the World Health Organization, have labeled it a mental health crisis for teenagers. And of course, these are the people, these are the new generations of Ukrainians that will continue down the line. What effect will all of this have on them in the long run? Who knows? But the fact of trauma across the board um, in all these things that we see in Chisinau and many other places along the western borders of Ukraine underscores the suffering on an individual level going on for not just hundreds of thousands of people, but millions of people. Keep in mind, 8.5 million refugees that have fled the country, that's equivalent to the population of Austria. If this was happening in Austria, like that, if you had an entire nation in crisis, it would be number one global news. That's exactly what's happening here. Okay. The third and final stop on this tour of the border, if you will, uh, of the war zone, is a city called Reszyszow. In Poland, I'm probably not pronouncing it correctly. So to my Polish listeners, I apologize. Certainly Polish listeners, you know where it is. Um, If some of you in the United States have heard of it, feel like you've heard of it recently, it's because it's a border town in Poland right on the Ukrainian border. And last week, 
It's the town from which American President Joe Biden hopped on a train in the middle of the night without the rest of the world knowing it and took a nine and a half hour journey across Ukraine to Kiev, where he met with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky walking around in broad daylight in the midst of this cap, this war, this wartime capital city. It was a major statement by the president as well as by the United States. And it was meant to do several things. First, to upstage Vladimir Putin as he began to try and put his spin on what one year of the war had meant. Biden preempted that by showing up earlier in the week and pronouncing very clearly for Zelensky and for the rest of the world to hear that the United States and its NATO allies were going to stick with Ukraine for the duration of the war and that that was non-negotiable as far as his administration was concerned. It was considered a major shot in the arm. It was also considered a major humiliation for Putin. The United States informed Putin and the Russians that Biden was going to be taking this trip. Um, and there was literally nothing Putin could do about it short of, you know, doing something incredibly stupid and trying to attack the American president, which would have meant a much larger, larger escalation of the war. But that did not happen and didn't ever really appear to be uh, a risk of it happening. But nevertheless, this was something that one year into the war underscored that at least from the point of view of the United States politically, of the administration and its official position, the United States has making clear that it has decided where it stands. And in addition, that same week, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken laid out very clearly to the Chinese that it would not be beneficial to them or anyone else if they decided to supply the Russians with what Blinken called lethal assistance, meaning weapons, to fight against Ukraine. Everyone knows Russia is running out of weapons. And the fear, of course, is that the war would expand and prolong and perhaps drag on even further if the Chinese begin arming the Russians. In a lot of ways, it's what the United States and the European Union are doing to keep Ukraine afloat. And the United States and the European Union want to keep the status quo, as far as that's concerned, contained. Because in that sense, in the long run, if Europe and the United States stay the course politically, economically, militarily, the idea is they can outlast whatever Russia can bring to the table by itself. If China jumps in and gives lethal assistance, then that calculus changes. But what you have, of course, on, in that border town is, much like we saw in uh, Chisinau in Moldova, a very similar situation with refugees, uh, with children, with youth centers, with health problems of all sorts, and, of course, that front line, again, between what Russia is and what it is trying to be and what Europe and the rest, at least of the Western world and a large part of the world, would like to remain. And so it's a very, very stark set of options that we see in both these three towns and in general. So where does that leave us? <laughs> in light of Biden's bold proclamation and then Putin's bizarre, bizarre and frankly painful celebration, televised celebration on the 24th, uh, between those two things, uh, where does it leave us? For those of you who did not see, 
Putin's celebration was held in a giant soccer stadium in Moscow. And one of the centerpieces of this over-the-top patriotic celebration, um, celebration, quote-unquote, was Putin brought out children, Ukrainian children, who had been captured by Russian forces in the besieged city of Mariupol, which dominated the news for a long time. He brought these kids out, and before everyone in the stadium, as well as all of Russia, put them on a mic and told them to thank their Russian liberators for liberating them from Ukraine. And you can Google this and find the footage. It is painful to watch because clearly these children are under duress. And in one case, a 12-year-old girl was saying what she was clearly told to say with no enthusiasm and deep pain in her eyes. And behind her, her younger sister is holding her hands over her ears, practically screaming because it's so loud in that stadium. And one cannot help wonder, hmm, it's actually not even a surprise. Where did her young, where did her fear of loud noises come from? And scary situations come from. And yet she was being put up on stage by Putin to thank Russian soldiers for stealing her from her home. What does that do to young girls, to young people? So where do we stand in those things? When we come back from break, I'll have a few thoughts on that before I give you some updates on what's going on with me. So stick around. Come on right back. Kids never have trouble dreaming about their future. The challenge is providing them the resources and opportunities to reach them. This is especially true from historically underserved communities. Fortunately, there's an organization that can help those dreams become reality. Airway Science for Kids helps underserved youth develop life and career pathways through exploration of aviation and aerospace. Using in-person and virtual programs, along with partnerships with companies, educational institutions, community health providers, and other resources, Airway Science for Kids helps students not only find their dream careers, but also learn how to better advocate for themselves and connect more effectively with their families, peers, and communities. To find out more, visit airsci.org. That's A-I-R-S-C-I.org. Or email info at airsci.org. Airway Science for Kids. Providing aerospace for all. Welcome back, everyone, to this show is all about you. Looking back on a year of war between Russia and Ukraine and uh, took a look at three different locations uh, on the map between the war zone and uh, I guess the rest of the world, you could say, and what the changes there uh, suggest about the war itself, but also what they suggest for going forward. There are some good things here that are worth talking about here before we transition to what's going on with me. Uh, first, the very fact of in the midst of all that sad news that I mentioned in the last segment, the fact that there are so many organizations and individuals around the world involved in sending relief of all kinds to help Ukrainian refugees and to help people inside the country is uh, really a positive element that I focus on quite a bit. Uh, the United Nations, as well as the World Health Organization and other entities have estimated this is rapidly becoming one of the biggest refugee assistance events in human history. And a lot of things from medicine to food to relocation resources 
even things like teddy bears and toys and coloring books and bicycles are making their way to Ukrainians who have fled their homeland or are inside Ukraine and have had to move from one place or another. You add that to the military assistance that countries like the United States and countries within, within NATO have added in and what that what that's doing to their economic uh, strength and their, their allocation of resources. That is a major investment in what is happening in Ukraine. There is a recognition among more and more people in the United States as well as in Europe and elsewhere that the investment in helping Ukraine is not just about helping Ukrainian people resist an unjust war. That is motivation enough, or at least it should be to me. But there is a recognition that a line drawn in the sand between Ukraine and between Putin is one that needs to be held because if it is not, Putin is likely not going to stop. And this will be seen again and again in other places in Europe. Better to stop this and solve this now than wait until later. If you need a historical precedent for that, look back in the United States, at least to the last time there was a major isolationist movement going on in the country like there is now. And that was in the lead up to World War II. And the people who were the so-called America Firsters then turned out to be very, very wrong. Might be good in this situation to learn from that experience. There is no division between what America needs and what Ukraine needs and what Europe needs. Not on this question at all. Not in my opinion. And I'm willing to argue that point with anyone who wants to address it otherwise. So there is that. The, the recognition among millions that this is about something bigger than just Ukraine is encouraging. We live in a world, increasingly because of social media, among other things, that is seemingly feels increasingly about me, 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 and more, 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 more for me, 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 me. Not one of our more endearing characteristics <laughs> as people. Nevertheless, we're also seeing, because of this, more evidence between more people in more countries that there are plenty of people out there willing to make sacrifices, willing to give, willing to go through discomforts, willing to help people that they've never met before. That's encouraging. It's unfortunate that it takes the biggest war in Europe since World War II for us to see that on such a grand scale. But nevertheless, it is still something worth noting and feeling positive about. And then, of course, the other thing it can be positive about it is it can, it can give us an opportunity to once again re-examine where we each stand and what we believe in. What are the principles, the values that we each hold dear? I've said on the show before, I'll say it again, perhaps my number one belief about the world, and this is what I choose, is that every human being has inherent dignity, integrity, and self-worth. Those should be not only enshrined and embraced by the people who have them, but they should be protected and supported by other people. And when there are those who try and take those away from someone else, those people should be challenged on that. Now that can look like a lot of things and one would wish that it would be able to be done without a major war like this happening. But with this war here, this is an opportunity, a very stark one, to put ourselves on the line with that. 
to ask ourselves continually, what do we stand for? What are we willing to sacrifice, to give up for the sake of a larger principle that we believe is for the betterment of all humanity? For me, it's why I talk about this war on this show every week. Because to me, it is much bigger than just what is happening in that part of the world, as catastrophic and important as that is. For me, it's putting my money where my mouth is. It's taking a position and taking a stand on one side of something. Even though I spend a lot of time reading and taking in other people's perspectives, that type of thing. The violation of Ukrainian people's sovereignty, their own lives by Vladimir Putin is a line too far. And it makes me also ask the question to myself, where are the other lines around the world (laughs) that might be about to be crossed? And maybe do I need to reevaluate those positions as well? It's something that provides us an opportunity to do that. And for every person who does that, I take that as a positive. So with those things in mind, maybe that feels like cold comfort a year in. But there are plenty of times in life where really the only thing to do is to continue to grind forward. The Ukrainian people are doing that. And the least I can do is continue to do that to the best of my ability in the ways that I can and ask other people to do the same in their own context, in their own way, in the ways that align with their own values and their own way of seeing things. Hopefully all of it pointed in the direction of trying to treat people, other people, even people on the other side of the world, more decently today than we did the day before. Okay. So with that, I always like to wrap up each episode with a little bit of an update on where I am. Well, uh, boy, there's a lot going on uh, with all of this. And of course, you know, what I just talked about for 40 plus minutes (laughs) does take up some of my time. I keep track of it on a daily basis. Um, I I don't submerge myself in it, though. One of the things that I do with the news is every day once I'm up and I go through my morning routine, which has nothing to do with the rest of the world or my phone or anything like that. It has to do with me, a cup of coffee, some quiet time, (laughs) maybe reading something not connected to the news. Once that happens, then before I start my work day, I spend a little bit of time updating on the news, particularly, and I start with what's happening in Ukraine. I have a series of outlets that I go to for the latest updates on that. If you're interested, which ones I go to, please send me a note on social media or at wordsbyjdk.com. I'd be happy to share with you the ones that I use. So I do that, and then I go through my day as best I can. If something big is going to happen, I figure my phone with its notices is going to tell me, or I'm going to start getting texts from a lot of people I know. <laughs> so I'm going to find out. And then usually the uh, towards dinner time, I take another look and see what else has happened. And then I don't look at the news for the rest of the day because I do not want all of that taking up my attention and my emotional bandwidth past the dinner hour into the evening. I want to settle back in to myself. It is not a, it is not a bad thing to do. In fact, it's a very good thing to do for me to remember that I have a life to live every day. No matter what's going on outside in the rest of the world, as important as it is and as much as I care about it, I do not do anyone around me any service by losing myself and losing my emotional stability, my emotional health, 
uh, my energy, losing all of that because I'm absorbed in what's going on in the world. And so I keep those, I keep that packaged nicely because in between I've got a lot of other things going on. Right now, I think the biggest thing is I, I was talking to a friend of mine about this just yesterday and I said, I feel like when I was a kid uh, growing up in Huntington Beach, California, Surf City, USA, self-described. Okay. But nevertheless, and I lived in Hawaii before that. I know some other surfing areas, Huntington Beach, it may not just be you. But nevertheless, when I was in Huntington Beach, I did a lot of bodyboarding when I was a kid. And I would remember the feeling when a wave was coming in that I was paddling to try and catch. And I knew at the moment that I caught it. That feeling of, okay, I've caught the wave. Now I'm going to ride it. And there's always a moment where you know that's going to happen. You're wondering, you're wondering, are you going to have to go over the top of the wave? Is it going to get past you? Or have you not paddled fast enough to catch it? The moment you know you're in the groove. It's a very real moment, and it's a moment of excitement mixed with some trepidation, mixed with a wondering of how this is going to (laughs) go. I kind of feel that way right now with all the different things that I am doing uh, in my life. And the other day, last, late last week, um, in a very different context, I was in a position where a friend of mine, uh, we're in a, a networking group together, was laying out, I was going to speak to this group, was laying out all the different things that I've been doing. And it was, <laughs> it was really enlightening to hear somebody else list out all these things. And I went, whoa, I have a lot of things moving in a similar direction. And that's where I started to get that feeling of, okay, I'm catching this wave. The podcast that I'm doing, putting forward my alternate history fiction novel, Crella's Inferno, trying to get it published, trying to get it out in the world, uh, the various podcasts that I do, uh, my recent certification as a human potential coach and what that's going to mean for me in business as well as in other areas of my life. All of it really seems more and more clear to be pushing in a certain direction under an umbrella that is increasingly making sense to me. And there's more to come on this. And I, I sometimes don't want to talk about these things until I've, I'm a little further down the line, but for the sake of letting everybody who listens know, yeah, there's a lot of moving parts, but sometimes, sometimes it can get really easy to get lost in what step do I take next? That is becoming clearer to me. And in the weeks and months ahead, I hope to be talking more on this show and in other, in other areas on social media and elsewhere about all the different things that are going to be happening and the new things I'll be adding into uh, all of this, to kind of bring all of this together. And, and by this, I mean, capital T H I S whatever this is. I've been asked so many times in the past few years that I've been doing all this, JD, where is all this going? Well, and I used to really struggle with that answer. Now, when I hear that, I say, well, I don't know where it's going. All I do know is what is going on now. And all I have to decide is the next step to go forward. Right now, I think it's, it's gearing towards doing some revamps of my website, wordsbyjdk.com, which has been wonderful for all the things that I've been doing before. And it could use some updating. So that's going to be happening uh, sometime soon. It also is requiring me to take a look at the approach I've been taking to get Corella's Inferno, my novel, my novel published. Um, 
I am casting a wider net uh, of consideration than I did before. I've been really trying to find an agent and to find a publisher uh, to do this sort of the traditional way, I guess, is the way to put it. Uh, I'm starting to become more intrigued by the possibility, though, of alternate routes. And I haven't fully thought it through yet or fully decided on any of it. But um, I'm reminded, I've been reminded of these past few days by something that uh, my friend Stacy Harris of Lens Group Media, who helped produce my first podcast, Building from the Bullet Hole, once said to me about publishing the book. And I was telling her, uh, I was actually right outside a coffee shop, I was telling her about why I wanted to go the traditional publishing route. And she said to me, as only Stacy could and can in her Australian accent, said to me, JD, why are you waiting for somebody else to tell you that you're pretty? Do you not believe you're pretty on your own? <laughs> and that's, that's come back to me recently. And so um, I'm in a spot where I'm considering to what degree do I want to get the story out? And to what degree do I want to stick with this idea that I have in my mind that traditional publishing is the way to go? The fact is, on some level, my ego is wrapped up in that. The idea of having a publisher publish the book um, feels good, right? It's something that gives to some people, at least in my mind, gives a book cachet as opposed to something that comes from self-published or, or some, other, some other format. That might just be me. <laughs> and there's a good chance that I have some, some ego questions to unwrap in there. So I'm working on that, talking about it with various people and deciding upon a course of action. So those two things considered, the, the book as well as the website, right now feel like the things to me to address to get the rest of this moving all in the same direction. I feel good about this show. I feel good about breaking up with our BS and the stuff that I work on with Tawny uh, Santa Bria, my broadcast partner there. I feel really good about the writing project that I have with her and that I'm doing uh, on my own. I feel like the Corella's Inferno and the website are the places to go. So stay tuned for more information on that. And if you have any questions about that, please reach out to my website, wordsbyjdk.com, and I would be happy uh, to share that with you. And of course, I'm willing to take any suggestions you have. And if any of you out there have either self-published or gone with a traditional route, want to share your perspectives on that, I would love to hear those as well. So thank you for joining me for this episode of Breaking, breaking Up. <laughs> See what happened there, Eric? I got turned around. This show is all about you. <laughs> I'm running short on time, so I'm going to have to truncate my thank yous. Uh, but certainly, thank you to Eric for doing all my producing, editing, mix mass. I appreciate that. Thank you also to Radio, uh, Hubbard Radio Seattle for making this show possible. Thanks to Airway Science for Kids uh, for their generous sponsorship and to Dave Nelson of Lens Group Media for the original theme music for this show. All the normal thank yous are all out there. Everybody, you know who you are uh, for uh, your support. Thank you for all of that. And of course, for you listeners, thank you. I couldn't do this for you without you. And finally, as I wobble my way out of this episode, let's, let's send you off to the rest of the week with the original haiku. One year down this road, we can look forward and back choosing to connect. Chins up, everyone. <laughs>